Good morning, friends. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Sabbath School discussion here at Loma Linda University Church that is a part of our annual prayer conference. A couple of items before we meet the guests and friends that are with us. One is at the end of the service, if you would like to share an offering in support of the prayer conference and other ministry that happens here, that would be greatly appreciated. You can do so in the lobby. Nobody will be passing by to gather an offering, but you can leave one there, and we appreciate that very much. As you know, this is the prayer conference, so there are other events to come. Some of you just worshiped with us in our first service. Others will remain after this for our 1145 service, and then there are two services over at Anthem, so we hope that you will take advantage of that opportunity, as well as the afternoon. 3.45, there will be a prayer time that will be a meaningful experience. And then at 5 o'clock will be the closing ceremony that includes, as you know from previous years, includes an anointing service that can be a deeply meaningful experience. So we hope that you will continue to be a part of what happens at this year's prayer conference. One of the realities that always arises when we talk about prayer is the silence of God. I am comforted by the fact that when I read Scripture, especially certain sections of Scripture, such as the Psalms, it's not only the Psalms, but it's very definitely present there, that there were other people of faith who lived far, far earlier than we did in the history of this world and who had profound relationships with God and yet who experienced silence. Some of them are very pointed in their questions. God, are you going to stay up there forever and not answer? They're pretty direct. It actually can be very encouraging to read them when you yourself are going through a period of time where it feels God is not responding. So we're going to talk about that today. I have three friends here on the platform that I want to first of all introduce you to, and then I want to come back and hear a bit about the story they bring with them today. So to my left and to your right, over to the, my extreme left, is Janet Louie. Janet, tell us just briefly who you are. I am a mother, a wife, a grandmother. Mostly I'm a grandma nana tutu these days, but I'm also the prayer coordinator for the Southern California Conference, and I think God gave me that role just because he knew I was going to need a lot of prayer partners and a lot of prayer. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Janet. And then here to my left, a friend from all the way back in Andrew's days and a friend from here in Loma Linda, Tom and Meredith Sherwin. Tell us a bit who you are. Uh, my name is Tom Sherwin. I work here at the university. Uh, I work in the Peds Emergency Department, and I'm a father, uh, a husband, and a, gra a grandpa. Just That's hard to believe, Tom. <laughs> I know. It's great. <laughs> and, uh, um, and we have three kids, and um, we've um, been uh, involved in a lot of prayer lately. Thank you, Tom, very much. And Meredith? Hi, I'm Meredith Sherwin, and I am a mom, and I also work as a nurse at Loma Linda in the outpatient surgery department. And then recently, I have started a new journey with taking clinical pastoral education um, in hopes of becoming a chaplain at Loma Linda. And um, we have, as Tom said, three kids. We live in Yucaipa. We have been very connected with the community here. We raised our kids um, 
contemporaries of Anita and Randy's good friend. They're, each of their children and our children were good friends, and we went through the homeschooling program a lot together with each other. So um, we've been very uh, involved with the community here for quite some time, and now our children have grown, and our oldest has got his first child. And then we have one that we will be talking about today who uh, is 26, and then a daughter who is 22, finishing up her nursing degree at Walla Walla. Beautiful. Thank you very much to each of you. Janet, I'd like to start with you and just ask if you would take a few moments to share a bit of the story that you bring with you today. Thank you, Randy. Um, this has been a journey, just to share the journey. So uh, thank you, Anita, for asking. If you ever have the opportunity, accept it, because God will do a lot of work in your own heart. I want to begin with a passage that I believe if I could have known this passage as a young girl, it would have been the cry of my heart. From Psalms 28, 1 and 2. I pray to you, O Lord, my rock, do not turn a deaf ear to me, for if you are silent, I might as well give up and die. Listen to my prayer for mercy as I cry out to you for help as I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. My actual words were more like, Dear Jesus, this is too hard for a little girl. Help my daddy to stop yelling. Help him to become a Christian so we can have a happy home. Those prayers were never answered as a child. I would grow up, leave home, leave God, return, and then fast forward maybe 25 years, it's Christmas, and in my heart I feel a need to buy a Christmas card for my father. And the story is, in the card, is the story of salvation, and it begins with, because I care. God's signature cards that show up when you least expect it. And then I said, but God, Dad's been hostile to Christianity. You see, he was Jewish, and my mother became Christian after they were married and a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And he felt it took his family from him. He felt betrayed, and the church was not something he had high regard for. And so when I gave him this card, I thought, how did he respond? Did it impact him in any way? And I said, God, could you just let me know? A few days later, my mother would call me and say, Janet, did you give a card to your dad for Christmas? And I said, yeah, I did. Why? And he said he was really anxious to find that card. He didn't want to lose it. And I said, thank you, God. Thank you for showing me that even though you're silent, you're working. The next little snapshot I want to take you to was um, when my dad was about 58, and um, he needed open-heart surgery. My father-in-law was a heart surgeon at the White Memorial Hospital, and he really had confidence in my father-in-law, so he wanted to come to the White Memorial for his surgery so my father-in-law could be in the surgery suite with him. And when my father-in-law, Alfred Louis, saw 
um, my father's test results, he knew he needed to do the surgery. And so it was ask your siblings, which I have seven, and your mother if it's okay because it's a little bit unethical for me to operate on him. It was kind of a cute story because I got into the surgery suite the morning of, or right outside the surgery suite, and I said, Dad, can I pray with you? This is something we like to do before surgery. And my dad started laughing, and I thought that's not an appropriate response. <laughs> and then he said to me, <laughs> he said, yesterday, the cardiologist came in, and he said, you know, you might not make it off the table. Are you good with that? And uh, then uh, he said, can I pray with you? And then the anesthesiologist came in, and he said, you know, your, hands are gonna, your life is going to be in my hands tomorrow. Can I pray with you? And then the, the one who had the heart-lung machine came in and said, I'm really going to have your life in my hands tomorrow, and I want to give it to God. Can I pray with you? And then it, when it was time for bed, he said, the little nurse came in, and she said, there's not many of us left like this around here anymore, but I like to pray with my patients before they go to surgery. Can I pray with you? <laughs> and she said, and then Alfred, who was my father-in-law, came in this morning and said, Stan, can I pray with you? And so he laughed, and he said, if there's anything to this prayer stuff, I think I'm well covered. And so I was able to pray with him. Um, fast forward again. Uh, my father's diagnosed with uh, colon cancer. He's um, had surgery and chemo, and he's dying. I'm taking a class at Fuller and Family Therapy, and the, the assignment is if your parents are still alive, make up some questions, ask the questions of your father or mother and write him up. And so I go, what can I ask my dad? I asked him, Dad, do you have any unfulfilled dreams or expectations? And he said, you know, I always wanted to return to Normandy, um, to Omaha, Omaha Beach, where I fought in the war. I called this doctor and I said, can you travel? It's November. He says, if you do it before the end of the year, that makes December when the class was over on December 9, December 10. Two brothers and I took him on his way to France on oxygen in a wheelchair. And when we got to the beach, you can tell me maybe it was a coincidence, but I'm telling you it was God. When we left Paris, it was raining outside, it was cloudy, and as soon as we moved into Omaha Beach, a big, huge circle opened in the sky in bright sunshine. He struggled, never talked about the experience except I let him and my brother walk together, and never heard the stories myself. But then I went with him to the cemetery. And as we walked in the most pristine place I've ever been in my life, such sacred grounds of people who had given their life for us um, to have the freedom that we have today, my father found uh, one of the crosses with the Jewish star on it. And the 18-year-old boy had been from Michigan 
where we were raised. I grew up in Battle Creek. And my dad stood there and he wept. And he said, why did I get a life? And he didn't. Precious moments that God gave to me. Precious moments. My father would come to live with me the last three months of his life. He would come to accept Christ five months before he passed away. When my brother would say to him, are you ready to say yes to Jesus? Never went to church. Never finished the Bible studies that he started 54 years before. Was going to go to church the morning he woke up on a coma because it was Thanksgiving weekend and he felt like he needed to give thanks. That never happened. But the last conversation he had with me, I'd been trained as a nurse, hadn't worked very many years with it. The last night when he climbed into his own bed, and excuse me, but he missed himself. And I said, Dad, I need to clean you up. And he says, no, I can't let you do that. And I said, what do you think all the nursing dollars were for? Not that he had money to pay for any of them, but he allowed me. And as I cleaned him up, he said, um, sorry. I just want to say thank you to you and Al. He said, I love you, and I'll see you in the morning. The next morning, he was in a coma. He would come out of that coma for a few hours that night, long enough for me to wake up my mother in Michigan and my brother in Boston, who was heartbroken because he was supposed to come a few days later and be with my dad. And when he was there, awake, he'd been um, in renal failure for a couple of days. He had a lot of, a lot of uh, itching, I guess, and was trying to scratch without the co coordination. So I said to my daughter, we're going to wash Grandpa's hair. She says, how are we going to do that? He's in bed. I said, trust me, they taught us how to do it as a nurse. And so we got the basin. And I can only tell you what a beautiful, beautiful moment it was to pass that baton for mother and daughter to serve her grandfather by washing his hair. Story's not done, but God does answer. Delay is not denial. That's really an amazing story, Janet, because as I think about you and that whole process, that whole journey, I think how many people are there here in our congregation today who are at some stage along that journey, praying deeply for someone they love and waiting, just waiting to see what will happen, how God will move in their lives. So that's, it's very powerful. Thank you. Yeah. That was a 52-year journey, folks. Wow. So don't give up. Beautiful. Thank you, Janet, so much for sharing that with us. Tom and Meredith, your story is quite different than that, but equally and deeply challenging. So let me just ask if you would share, because I can remember getting a text from a common friend. 
I can't tell you the exact amount of time ago. It wasn't that long, two or three years ago. You may correct me because time gets away from me. But tell us what happened. Um, our son um, was in a bad accident. And so... This is your... Our middle, middle child. Okay. Yes. So we have an older... We have two boys and a girl. So our oldest son who's married and lives in Maine. It was not him, it was our middle son, uh, Spencer. And then we have a daughter, Sophie. And so it was in the middle of the pandemic and everybody remembers just how devastating that was. At the very beginning, nobody really understood what was happening. Um, my work ended at outpatient surgery. They cl closed what was not deemed to be completely emergently needed. So I was off work at home. My daughter was sent home from Walla Walla on spring break and just sent home with the suitcase and not, we didn't know, we thought maybe it would be two weeks and she'd go back up, but no, she stayed home for a whole entire quarter. Our son, middle son, was at La Sierra at that time and when he was told that he'd have to do school online, he said, you know, mom, my learning style just can't handle sitting in a spare bedroom of our house alone with a laptop, so I'm just not gonna do any school this quarter, which was a disappointment to us. We were shocked and didn't understand, but we kept trusting, we didn't know what was happening. But So our daughter was doing her school and our son was home just kinda doing stuff, but as the end of the quarter ended, I had promised our daughter, since she worked so hard alone in a room doing her school, that we would take her up to school when they let her come up at the end of June to get her uh, items out of her dormitory. And I told her we would take a whole week and stay up there. She had a boyfriend up there she hadn't seen for a quarter. So we were gonna take a journey towards the end of June to um, retrieve her items and close out her dorm. We had a two-hour window. We, we had to make the appointment, and we'd get there and remove the things. And so I kept asking our middle boy, who was going to be sitting home all the days, if he'd come with us and to this trip up north to Walla Walla from Southern California. And he kept saying, no, you know, it's COVID. There's nothing to do up there. I said, come with us, and um, Sophie can be with her boyfriend, and you and I can go hiking. We can probably still eat out and sit outside. But every day he'd say, no, I don't think I want to go. And every time I knew I'd ask him, uh, he seemed to say no, but I kept praying that God would allow him to come because I felt that if he stayed home while his dad was working a lot, um, he would just be sitting home looking at the computer. So every day I asked him to come and he refused. And so I kept praying every day, Lord, please, I just feel like he needs to come with us on this trip. Um, but I said, Lord, I'm going to ask him every day. I'm not going to give him an ultimatum. I'm going to ask him to come. And if he doesn't come, I'm going to trust that he's in your will. So I asked every day without any kind of, you know, uh, reprimand or anything. But every day he'd say, no, I just don't think I want to go. So I would pray, and then I would go ask him. So every day we got down to the last day before my daughter and I were supposed to drive, start driving our drive up to Walla Walla, two-day drive. And I prayed in my bedroom one more time, and I said, Lord, I'm going to go ask Spencer one more time, and I'm begging you to please allow him to come on this trip with us. But I give him to you 100% and trust whatever he chooses that's in your hands. And so I went and asked him. I said, come along. We're leaving in a couple hours. We can stop by Walmart and buy whatever you need. Just come. And he said one more time, no, I don't want to come. So I had promised God that I would just be well with that. So I got in the car with my daughter and we drove to Walla Walla, had a lovely time. 
And while we were there, he would speak to me, my, our son at home would speak to me every night and tell me what the happenings were. Towards the end of our trip, we were getting ready to come home and I got a call from him the night before we were to start driving our two-day two drive home. And um, he says, Mom, you won't believe it. I have the most exciting news. My friend wants, and two friends of mine want to drive up to Seattle, to one of the friend's homes, and we want to go on a road trip. Please don't say no. And I was shocked because I thought, here we are up in this area you want to come to. You could have come with me. But I was praying while I was talking to him, and I thought, Lord, what do I do? And I instantly felt the Lord to say to me, you've over-mothered enough, you've been involved enough. He's an adult, he's 23 at the time, just trust him to me. So I, I, I just said, look, your dad will be home from the hospital at 11 tonight, you and he talk it over. I, you are an adult now. I'd rather you didn't go. I don't know these boys you're going with, but please talk to your father, and I trust you guys to decide what to do on this trip. I'd rather you don't go, but I'm not going to say no right now. And he said, thank you, thank you, thank you. The next day, uh, under unusual circumstances, all seemed to happen, and he ended up leaving on that trip. Um, my daughter and I were on our way traveling. It was a lovely drive. We drove to Salt Lake City. Our goal was to Salt Lake City that night. Um, and so along the way, we, you know, just talking and singing. I, for some reason, I could not get the hotel to answer in Salt Lake City. I wanted to make it there, but I thought, you know, maybe I'm pushing it too far. Let's just stop at Brigham City, an hour north of Salt Lake City. But as we got there, my daughter and I, Checked into the hotel about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Went up to the room. As soon as I got to the room, I had tried calling Spencer during the day, knowing that he was, after talking to Tom, he was on this journey that he had left on. He never, he never got my text, I don't think, and he did not answer his phone. So I kind of thought they must be having fun on the car and not hearing the phone ring. So I really hadn't heard from him, but I wasn't too worried about that. I get in the room. I see my phone is... The ringer is off, but I see a number showing up that I'm getting a call from Fresno at 11 o'clock at night. And I think to myself, I'm not going to take that. Fresno, I don't know anyone there. And then it hit me. My son is traveling through Fresno. I grabbed the phone, and it had a voicemail being left from a social worker at Fresno Community Regional Trauma Center. As an OR nurse, I know instantly that there's been an accident, and so I immediately dialed the number, and I was told, your son is here with us. He's going to be all right. He was flown in by helicopter. There was a car accident on the I-5. Um, he is going off to CT, and I said immediately, what are they looking for in the CT? What are his complaints? And they said that he had severe back pain. I asked about his extremities and how they were moving. I was told that his arms were working, but there was no information on his legs, and I knew what that meant. Um, they said that his Glasgow coma scale was 15, which tells me immediately that his brain is intact and he knows who he is and where he is and what's going on. I, my daughter isn't hearing any of this on the phone. She's sitting on the other bed, and I say to her in the hotel room, call your dad immediately, Spencer's been in an accident. So our daughter called my husband, who is an ER doctor, and is relaying the medical terms that I'm hearing from the social worker. She's relaying it to her father on the other phone sitting in the hotel room. So instantly we knew it was really tragic. 
So he'd been in a car accident and turned out he ended up being paralyzed. Wow. Tom, what was it like for you hearing this phone call and your daughter and your wife in the background? Well, it was um, when you're in the position of knowing what, what the words are that you're being told, you know exactly what his injuries are. And um, I'm having to go through my wife, to, through my daughter to my wife to uh, the people at Fresno. And um, so I knew that I had to get to the hospital. So I um, was able to get a hold of my son and... Uh, I decided that um, we were in the middle of COVID and uh, I knew that they wouldn't let me in the hospital. Um, it was a ridiculous time in medicine at the time. And we were experiencing the same thing here. Um, Fresno was on complete lockdown. They had no, all the stores, the downtown area, it was like an apocalyptic scene. There was no one on the streets. It was. The only cars were close to the hospital and at the hotel that we were going to stay at. So I got my older son to drive me the next morning to Fresno, and I, I just thought in my mind, well, I'm going to throw in some, a pair of scrubs, a couple pair of scrubs and some clothes into my duffel bag. I don't know. I thought I could sneak in or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, so I, um, my wife was still traveling back, so I went straight there, and then as Meredith got back, then my brother was able to drive her up to Fresno later that day. So I got up to Fresno first, um, and then some prayer answers happened. Meredith? Well, yeah, so it was very awful that first night to get that call in a hotel room as a mom with the child that you adore and have always worried about and prayed for, and you're faced with the fact that your child may not even survive. You knew that his mind was okay, but he was going in for surgery the next day. As a surgical nurse, I would have wanted to interview the surgeon and learn exactly what he was doing and what levels he was gonna be fused and all of those things. I did not get to ask any of those questions. He's an adult, he is in Fresno, I'm far away, my husband is in Southern California, I'm in Salt Lake City, our son is in Fresno having surgery tomorrow morning and they assured us that the surgeons were well qualified and all, but we had no information on any of it. Um, we were given a quick moment, I was given a quick moment to have Spencer look at me that night on a FaceTime. A wonderful orthopedic doctor said, I have one minute left on my phone, here's your son, you can say hello. And I am in a hotel, all I wanna do is scream and scream and scream, but I'm in a hotel, I can't do that. And I see my son and I have to, I realize I have to show him that even though I am completely losing it, I am gonna hold it together and give him some faith and some hope and some words. And so I said to him, Spencer, we love you, we're very far away from you right now, but we are coming. And the resident turns the phone and says, don't bother coming. This is COVID. Don't even come here because you will not be let in the hospital at all. And I'm thinking, if my son is being told he will never walk again and never many things again, I'm going to be there. And so I said, I don't care what it takes, but we will be there if I have to camp out on the front grass of your hospital. We will be there so our son knows we are there. And I had to have something. I had to give him something. And 
years ago, Spencer and I had a unique experience where we had been in Hawaii on a family vacation with many relatives. And we had left one evening to go to dinner with all the relatives, walked downtown. Spencer couldn't find his shoes. He took Tom's slip-on shoes that he'd just bought and wore them down into the town. We were on a wall that is over a seawall, and he was with his cousin, Spencer was, about 11 years old, and they were jumping back as the sea was coming up and the waves. Spencer jumped back, and one of the father's shoes flew off into the ocean. And he started crying, oh, dad's gonna you know, be so sad that I lost his shoe. And I said, you know, don't worry, we'll walk back to the hotel. And we were two, three miles from the hotel when this occurred. We, he and I walked back, got another shoe, we met everybody for dinner. As we started walking back to the hotel after dinner, hours later, a three-mile walk back, for some reason, Spencer was still concerned about the, the shoe, and I said, you know, as we're walking, I heard some music on the shore, and I said, you know, Spencer, let's go walk along the, the sand, just in case. It's now 11 o'clock at night. We'd lost this thing at about 6. We start walking along, and he'd run up. It's pitch dark. The rest of the family walked home through the town. As we'd run up, he'd run up to something. Oh, Mom, it's a shoot. No, it's a bottle. Oh, it's an old can. Literally, we were on the island. That, that shoe could have gone either way, but it ended up somehow. We walk, he runs up again and finds something and says, Mom, Mom, it's, it's a Fila slip-on shoe. And I said, no, it can't be. And I said, well, it's not the right one. And he said, it's the right one. I lost the right one. Well, it's not size 10. It's size 10. And so I said, Spencer, as an 11-year-old child, I said, get down on your knees right now. I said, we're going to pray. And we said, thank you, Lord. This is absolutely impossible. How did we find this, this slip-on shoe? After all this time, it could have floated to either side of the island. And Spencer found it. And I turned to him and I said, this is an important story you will need for your life, sometime, you will tell your grandchildren, I hoped, that we wouldn't need it so early, but I said, this is a story to show you that God cares so much, even about a slip-on shoe. And so that night, when the resident turned the phone to my son, and I said, Spencer, I love you, we're going to be there, remember what God did for you when he helped us find the Fila slip-on shoe. And he always remembered that. And I, I just thought, it, God gave me that reminder. So I was able to tell him and remind him that God is with him during that time. And that helped me a lot, too. Well, I'm just overcome with emotion just thinking about what you as a family went through, what Spencer went through, what you as parents went through and are going through. I remember Tom texting you that we were praying we were all praying, your friendship circle. And that story continues. It kind of reminds me, Janet, of what you said when you came to the end of what you shared with us. You just said the story continues. And in a very real way, not only Janet for you, but Meredith and Tom for you, for Spencer, for your family, the story continues, the prayers continue. And yet, as we mentioned, we're, we're talking about those times, those moments, those experiences where it seems that heaven is silent, that it's quiet. St. John of the Cross referred to it as the dark night of the soul, those times when we, we come with deep prayer, with deep pleading, and yet we find silence. 
So, Janet, let me ask you, what are some reflections on silence that have come to you and grown out of your story? So one of the reflections on uh, silence, what comes from maybe God speaks to us in different ways. This may seem like an unusual person to get a quote from, but J.R.R. Tolkien once said or wrote, who cannot understand your silence cannot understand your words. I want to read that one more time. Who cannot understand your silence cannot understand your words. And I think through this journey and the continuing journey of my life, almost three quarters of a century now, um, God has just shown up in so many ways um, with little signature cards. But that idea, there was another quote that how lovely is the silence of growing things and how much my life has grown through this season of silence and hopefully will continue to grow. That's a powerful thought. I can remember when Anita and I were, were falling in love. I was pastoring in Austin, Texas. Thus our son, named Austin, came a half a dozen years later told Austin, he's lucky we weren't living in Waxahachie. <laughs> I can remember falling in love with Anita, and I think, I think one of the times that I realized we truly were, our, our hearts were intertwining, were those times when we could drive and not have to talk. There would just be silence. There wasn't a stress or a pressure to feel like, I got to say something to fill this space. I think we've probably all had that experience where there's another human being with whom we have a deep enough relationship and enough ease in their presence when silence can be, as one great writer said, at the element in which great things fashion themselves. I appreciate that thought. Tom, I'm just thinking of you getting that news that night in two roles. One is as a physician. Meredith, you've talked about you getting that news as a nurse and, and all those questions which I would have had in very indistinct blobs, you know, trying to figure, but you had clarity. You knew what you would be asking if you were in the OR. And Tom, you as an ER peds physician, you're getting that news. So first of all, you're processing this stuff medically, but you're a father and and Every father's heart, every parent's heart, it has to be struck with terror at a moment like that and with calling out to God. How has all that affected that for you, Tom? Well, with uh, Spencer, we have two, we had two concerns. We, d we didn't like the trajectory of his life at the time. And we were praying for him a lot in that. And we had laid it all out on the line and we said, Lord, You've got to intervene in his life and somehow. And I, you know, you pray for intervention and you don't, you don't think it's going to be a car accident. You don't think it's going to be paralysis. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, it was tough. I remember when he was leaving on that trip, I, I had my phone sitting out in front of me and I, I had, was trying to say, I don't want you to go on this trip. I want you to, I can fly you up there. 
I can get you a plane ticket. And I was going back and forth looking at plane tickets. Finally, he said, no, I really want to go. And I just felt this peace come over me and say, okay, I really don't want you to go, but you can go. I'm going to just pray that, you know, that God will take care of you. So that was uh, an unusual experience for us. But uh, we had the faith that God was doing something in his life. Um, to go to the, the story, I ended up in Fresno, and I thought we were just going to be communicating him through social media. But because of prayers back here and conversations with people back here, <clears throat> CEO of one hospital talked to the CEO of another hospital, a trauma coordinator who had gone to school with Meredith intervened, and uh, the surgeon was <laughs> friends of Dick Catalano, my friend. So um, next thing I know, I get there to the, um, uh, I get to the hospital, and uh, they said, this is really unusual. Uh, do you happen to have any scrubs on you or anything that you can put on or anything? And I said, yeah, I brought some scrubs. And they said, look, if you show up at this check-in area, we'll... Um, take you up. And for the whole week he was in the trauma center, I got to be with him from 7 a.m. every day. Just me, not Meredith, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And so I was like his extra nurse, so they all liked me up there. I just sat in the corner with my scrubs on, pretended I was part of the team, and, and I got to spend a lot of time talking to him. And, uh, and we, when we even set him up, we got Meredith... There was a parking structure right across from his window. We opened up the curtains, and <laughs> Meredith was sitting on top of the parking structure, jumping up and down. I said, see, there's your mom over there. You know, she's talking on the phone, talking to him. So it was, you know, that was a, a miracle to have that happen. So we had friends, and, and we got privileges that, we, that other people didn't get, so I was very humbled by that. And, you know, we prayed for a miracle with the surgery, but... Um, you know, I kind of knew what it was going to be, and we kept praying for it, but when we were, you know, speed forward, we, we had a good experience when he was transferred back down here to Loma Linda, but then we also went to rehab hospital in um, Colorado, and uh, there was hope that he has, his spinal cord wasn't a complete injury, um, and uh, I pray it was praying the whole time. And I knew that the doctor was going to come in and talk to him and tell him after there more studies and more imaging was done. Um, and I just remember I was late to the meeting. Spencer was sitting there in his wheelchair, and the doctor was sitting there. And I remember I had, ins I had information knowing that she was going to tell him that it was a complete injury, that he wouldn't walk again. And um, was, it was a very helpless feeling. He's just, he's just sitting there, and I know what they're going to tell him. And he's just sitting there, dutifully sitting there. So it was very hard for me, knowing all what I know about medicine and stuff. And, and we've always been encouraged how good of an attitude he's had, but we've always been praying for him spiritually, and those prayers are still silent. I'm not, we're not hearing that. So that has kind of been our experience. It's, it's twofold, you know. We prayed for intervention in him, and um, and you know, and he he has an injury, and we're still waiting for the other, the other prayer. 
And well, and he, you, we all pray for our children for protection. We all pray for our protection of our children and raising them in the faith. You know, we all know Psalm 91 where we pray and that we're promised. You need not fear the dangers at night. You need not fear, um, you know, I will be with you. No deadly disease or plague will come near. You are safe. I will protect and defend you. And, you know, I kept thinking, where was he? Why? 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 And then the more I read it, and the more I read it, and the more I thought, I thought, he needed protection. I, I laid him, placed him in your will. He needed protection. I wasn't there. His dad wasn't there. People put on their uniforms and got in a helicopter and went and rescued him. Angels appeared when he was at his darkest time. Our son who struggles with acceptance and understanding God and the friends has had had struggles throughout his whole life. He, in his darkest hour, was upside down in a car on the side of the I-5 freeway at 114 or so degree weather, five o'clock in the afternoon, trapped upside down by the seat belt that was holding his hips up. His forehead had scraped along the road, and he told us that he knew he was in very dire danger. He could not feel anything. He was concerned he could be bleeding to death. He had a feeling that the car was going to catch fire. His friends had scrambled out. He is upside down, and he needed to let people know where he was, and he said he took stock and believed that if he started to scream, he might raise his blood pressure, and that would cause him to pass out. So he started singing. And they'd been listening to rock music all the way up there, I'm sure. And, and, but I said to him one time, I said, what did you sing? And he said, Mom, I sang. As my friends were outside holding my hand, I sang, Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. Worship his holy name. He sang that song to let people know where he was. And through all the wanderings and all the traumas and all the upset and all the what-ifs and is God working? Is he there? Why isn't our son resting in God that he saved his life but he's still struggling? But when I read Psalm 91 farther along and it says, God says, I will save those who love me. I will protect those who acknowledge me as Lord. And when they call, they call to me and I believe he was calling to God at that time. I will answer them. When they are in trouble, I will be with them. I will rescue them and honor them. I will reward them with long life. I will save them. So he sent angels to hold his head. Spencer has a higher level injury of fractures on the C5 and 7 level of his neck. And had they wrenched his neck just a bit, when they cut that seatbelt and his hips fell and they slid him out, if he'd have wrenched his neck in just such a way, he'd be a quadriplegic and not a paraplegic. He has the use of his fingers, he has the use of his hands and his shoulders, allows him to get in and out of bed on his own, in and out of the bathroom with having dignity and not having to have his mom and dad take care of him in such a way that would be hard on him. And so when I realized God did protect him, there are so many worse things that could have happened to him. He's alive, he's breathing, his brain is working, he ha has his arms in his hands, and that's so much more than many other people have been given when they go through tragedy. And that God 
even though we begged and screamed and cried out, please fix this, this cannot be true. We didn't get that protection that we always think we're entitled to, but we know we are protected. He was protected. Well, I just, it seems like words after your stories are just ways to fill the air because what you've said, each of you is so profound. There is, there is around us in the Christian world right now, and it's very prominent, uh, a kind of theology that says, if you have enough faith, you will get what you ask for. If you don't get it, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's heresy. It's rank heresy. Because if that's true, I think John the Baptist, Jesus himself, 11 of the 12 apostles who died violent deaths, and countless other people of God in the Scripture would have a great deal to say about that. What strikes me as I listen to your stories, Janet and Meredith and Tom, is that I think what requires the deepest faith is that experience of not getting precisely what you're asking for, especially now, and still being able, out of the dark night of the soul, out of the wrestling with God, to still be able to say, God, I believe you're with us. That, that is a faith that is deep and mature. So let me just ask both of you, Janet, I'm going to start with you and then Meredith and Tom, just concluding reflections on your own story, on the matter of God's silence and so forth. Well, I think one of the things that I really hold in my heart now is that God's promises are true, that he is faithful even when we're not faithful, even when we doubt, even when we shake our fist or we cry out in discouragement. He hears, he answers his time, his will, his way, and he's trying to help us learn to trust him. It's a matter of trust. It's a relationship. And he's not slow, as some count slowness, but he's patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Um, I think I've seen in my own life, as I said, the story still continues, that I still haven't had that little child prayer that I would have a Christian family, and so there's more generations to pray for, as Grandma Nana Tutu, um, and yet there's hope, and in the silence, there's just a special little quotation that I'd like, a couple little quotations I'd like to share with you that I found as I was looking at this. Um, Probably in the deepest moment of struggle for me, unrelated to my father a few years ago, my friend Michelle, who's prayer coordinator in Hawaii, took me to see Grandma Abby, her grandma. And in the midst of my pain, Grandma Abby put her arm around my shoulder as she was praying and said, Oh God, this one you must love. I said, <laughs> so much to entrust her with such sorrow. God must love you so much to entrust you with such sorrow. And at the end of the day, 
in the midst of the silence, I love this little thought. Eric Siegel. There was a brief silence. I thought I heard the snowfall. That's beautiful. Meredith, Tom? Well, I think you can just keep it simple and say, when there's life, there's hope. And uh, in our situation, um, everything shouldn't, there shouldn't have been life in that accident. It was not survivable. Um, so we know that God is watching and that the devil is way behind the game. He can try things, but God, with life, there's hope. And that's what we're still praying for, for changes in our son. Yeah, and what, I love what Joseph told his brothers, what the enemy meant for evil, God can use for good. God has used for good. And I did the thing the day after the accident. I said, Lord, I need a verse. I can't continue on. I know I have faith. I believe in you, but I have to have a verse. And he gave me, I opened my Bible and just looked down at something I had starred and put circles around years ago. And it said, do not cling to the events of the past. Do not dwell on what happened long ago or even just the other day. Watch for the new thing I am going to do. It is happening already. You can see it now. I will make a road through the wilderness and give you streams of cool water there. And I know that sometimes we don't have what we want in life, that we are shocked into something that occurs we have no control over, but he promises that he can do a new thing. Wow, that is so beautiful. A couple of concluding thoughts. One is I've spent about the last year and a half doing a deep dive into the book of Revelation because that's where we're going to spend our time this coming camp meeting. And while it has done many things to me in my own spiritual journey and my understanding of God and God's ways, it has certainly done one thing, and that is to say that out of the chaos of this world, maybe delayed according to our time clock, ultimately God arises and good comes and his kingdom is among us and real in presence, and we will be in his presence, and all tears will be wiped away. So that has been very real for me in recent days. And the second thing is, I just want to say, friends, we've been on holy ground this morning. Whenever we get into that arena of a person's or a family's wrestling and struggling with and crying out to God, and experiencing silence. That's truly holy ground. In a sense, it's Jacob wrestling with this being who is mightier than he is, holding on for dear life, saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. In a sense, that's the reality. I don't know where you are in your prayer journey, how deeply or how long or how much you have experienced the silence of God. But if that's where you are, just know you're not alone. There are others in the journey. And believe it or not, God is with you. And the day will come. You can't hold back the dawn. And I just wish you God's grace and his presence in this experience. I want to say a deep and a heartfelt thank you to each of you for your willingness to be here and share your story. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that others walk with us along the journey. 
and that we walk in the footsteps of countless others who have known what it is to wrestle, to struggle, to cry out, to encounter silence, some of whom have known what it is to finally come to resolution, others who will only fully come to resolution in the presence of God. Pray for Janet, for her family, for Tom and Meredith, for their son and their family. Might your spirit abide with them today and with us. In the name of Jesus, amen.